This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Luke chapter 22, I'll begin reading at verse 54. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. The servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story you just heard is an epic failure. Yet I want to submit to you this morning that an epic failure yearns for eternal forgiveness. This story does not just belong to the man named Peter. You change a few of the details of this story and it becomes my story. Becomes your story. This story is the personification of that Old Testament verse that pride comes before the fall. You and I would do well to rewind the sacred script just a bit. Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room observing the Passover. It was supposed to be a time of celebration, but all the disciples could detect that there was a somber tone that dominated the Messiah's demeanor. It is Luke who tells us that at some point in the meal, Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That picturesque phrase, sift you like wheat, means to stir you to the core, to agitate you, to stir you up, shake you up, simply stated, to mess you up. Satan has requested to mess you up. But I have prayed for you, Simon, Jesus replied, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. The phrase literally reads, your faith will not fail. It's not that Jesus is having a a wishful statement. It's not that he's just having a hopeful um, expectation. No, he is making a promise. Your faith will not fail. Peter, I want you to know that on this night, your faith will not fail. 
He's got to qualify that. He's got to further define that because he doesn't want anybody to uh, falsely think that because you have a faith that doesn't fail, that somehow Peter's going to have a superman invincibility or somehow be perfect. No, Peter is going to be far from perfect. He's going to have an epic failure. But Jesus says, when you turn back, the implication is you'll fall away. But when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. On this night, Jesus gives a great promise. Your faith will not fail. And Peter is so puffed up. Peter is so self-absorbed and arrogant. He says to Jesus, I am prepared to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you, in fact. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. On this night, Peter boasted too much. The version of this story is recorded in all four Gospels. We find it in Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, here in Luke chapter 22, and in John chapter 18. All four of the Gospel writers give us a little bit more clarity. When we put their stories together, we can accurately reconstruct the events of that night. It is Matthew and Mark who say that Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. They make their way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there along the way, Jesus says to his disciples, on this night, all of you will fall away from me. Jesus is preoccupied about this. He knows that on this night, he will be alone and everyone else will scatter. And once again, it's the self-absorbed, overconfident disciple named Peter who speaks up and says, even if all fall away from you on this night, I will not. And Jesus says what I believe a second time to Peter before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. They made their way into the garden. Jesus told his disciples to pray. He went a stone's throw away, knelt down, and prayed the world's toughest prayer. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus comes back about an hour later, he finds all the disciples asleep. Once again, it's Matthew who says that he asked the question specifically to Peter, men, can't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. He asked the question specifically to Peter. Jesus goes away and he prays a second time. He comes back fully expecting Peter to lead the group in a prayer meeting, but instead, Peter is leading the gang in a snoring chorus. All of them are asleep. In fact, I can well imagine that all those redneck disciples probably needed a CPAP machine because probably their snores were deafening. Jesus goes away and prays a third time. And he comes back, and they're still asleep, and he has to wake them up. Now, if you were Peter, you would think that on this night, when Jesus had already said not once but twice that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows, 
and he's telling you to pray, you would think you would do everything in your power to stay alert in prayer, asking God to strengthen you, because after all, Jesus is predicting that you're going to go through something that you can't handle. Now, all the while, Peter is overconfident. All the while, he's saying unto the Lord and saying to himself, I know myself better than you know me. I would never fall away from you. I would never deny or disown you. Yet my question to Peter is this, how many mistakes has Jesus ever made? How many times has he ever said something that did not come true? On this night, Peter boasted too much. And on this night, Peter prayed too little. While Jesus is talking to the disciples, a crowd that numbered in the hundreds came up the Mount of Olives. There were religious leaders, there were temple guards, there were Roman soldiers, there were other people in the massive crowd. They came with swords and clubs and torches to light up the night sky. They were led by one of their own. The one that history will call Judas the betrayer. And Judas had already given the sign, telling the crowd, the one I go and kiss on the cheek, that's Jesus. You need to arrest him. Judas gave Jesus the kiss of death. The temple guards seized the Lord. They did it violently. They did it abusively. The disciples took exception to this, number one, because one of their own had betrayed Jesus, and number two, they thought those soldiers were manhandling Jesus just a little bit too much. So it's John in his gospel who says that Peter drew a sword and he cut off the right ear of Malchus. Malchus was a servant to the high priest. Jesus immediately put down this skirmish. It's the Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus reached out his hand, put it on the side of Malchus's head, and healed his ear. And Jesus says, I've been speaking all week long. You could have arrested me in the temple, but you didn't hear you come with clubs and swords. Now is your dark hour. They seized Jesus violently. They were going to try to grab the other disciples, but those disciples scattered in the night sky. They were screaming like schoolgirls on the playground. They were afraid. They were petrified. They were gone. Jesus was alone. He stood there all by himself. They took Jesus into the home of the high priest. It's John who says that they took him to the house of Annas, the other gospel writers say that he went to the house of Caiaphas. So where did he go? Which one is right? I think all of them are right. Annas was the longtime high priest. You and I would call him high priest emeritus. He had been at it for a long time, but his son-in-law, Caiaphas, just this very year had been appointed as high priest. Both Annas and his Son-in-law Caiaphas, they, they lived in the same compound, in the same complex. Their houses faced each other. A courtyard uh, separated them. They lived behind a guarded, gated community. So all the gospel writers are right that Jesus was taken to the complex of the high priest. 
On this night, Jesus will have three mock trials. He'll stand before Annas, he'll stand before Caiaphas, and early in the morning, he'll stand before a collection of the Sanhedrin. Oh, these are trumped-up charges. They, they, they gather false witnesses to bear false testimony against Christ. But on this night, Peter, he boasted too much. He prayed too little. He acted too fast. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that he followed too far. They all had the very same phrase, but Peter followed at a distance. It's always dangerous to follow the Lord at a distance. He wanted to be there for the Lord, but he didn't want to be identified with the Lord. He wanted to live for Christ, but he also, out of self-preservation, knew that he needed to blend in to his culture. He was there, and a lot of people were there at the complex that night. They were all there at the high priest's compound. They had gathered because Jesus had been arrested, and Peter was there because he, made, he wanted to make good on his promise that he would never fall away from the Lord. But in that moment, he, he, wanted to, he wanted to stand with the Savior, but a safe distance so that he could also stand with his society. On this night, Peter looks a lot like contemporary Christians today. People who say, we want to love the Lord, but we also want to live like the culture and kind of blend in. We don't want to stick out. And so there are many people that attempt and try to follow Jesus at a distance. You do know that's always dangerous. It's always dangerous to follow Jesus at a distance. Wanting to be close enough, but safe enough away from all the action. This is Peter. On this night, he is about to have an epic failure. He boasted too much. He prayed too little. He acted too fast. He followed too far. And the end result was that he failed too often. I don't think that Peter was ready for the interrogation of that little servant girl. I think that if anything, he had uh, conjured up in his mind that he may be summoned and seized to stand before the Sanhedrin. And in that moment, I think he may have rehearsed a speech and been ready for that to think, you know, if the big moment comes and if they seize me and stand me in front of the Sanhedrin, I'll say something good. I'll say something in support of Jesus. And maybe Peter had rehearsed that speech in his mind, but he was caught off guard by that insignificant servant girl. Peter was warming his hands by the fire. He was there in the courtyard. Jesus was locked away in either the house of Annas or the house of Caiaphas. It was a cool night. And Peter is warming his hands next to everybody else, and all of a sudden there's a servant girl who's there. John says it's the one who let him into the complex. And she keeps staring at him. Her glaring hazel eyes made him very uncomfortable. He wanted to walk away, then all of a sudden she asked a question. Hey, Aren't you with him? He wasn't prepared for that question. Especially from someone as insignificant as a servant girl. He wasn't ready for that. It caught him off guard. It derailed him. He denied 
knowing Christ. He denied having any working knowledge of Jesus. He said, I don't know him. I'm not with him. While Peter is withering under the interrogation of a servant girl, Jesus is withstanding the interrogation of the temple guards, the religious leaders, and the Sanhedrin. In fact, once again, it's Matthew and Mark who tell us that while Jesus was standing in front of those mock trials, that those temple guards were spitting in his face. Spitting in the face of Jesus. They doubled up their fist and they punched him right in the cheeks. They even blindfolded Christ, slapped him across the face and said, prophesy, tell us who hits you. And Jesus didn't flinch, nor did he retaliate. Jesus withstood the interrogation. All the while, Peter in the courtyard is withering and wilting under the interrogation of a servant girl. We like to think, or are led to think that somehow these three denials of Peter happen, boom, 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 one right after the other. But I think that there's a few hours that span between the first one and the second one, between the second one and the third one. Peter can't bring himself to leave, but he doesn't want to be spotted anymore. So he tries to hide away in the shadows, and we are told that a, that a second person comes up and says, hey, aren't you with them? It's Mark who tells us that that second question comes from that same servant girl. She's persistent. It's Matthew who says, it's not the same servant, it's another servant girl. Luke says it in such a way that it demands a, uh, a response that leads us to believe that it's a male servant. For uh, Peter responds, man, I don't even know him. So you sit there and think to yourself, well, who's right? Is it, is it the same servant girl? Is it a, a different servant girl? Is it a, a male servant? Who is it? And the answer is all the above. And I, I can well conjure in my mind that it's that same servant girl who is persistent. She keeps pressing. And the longer she presses, the more people jump in, both men and women, other servants asking. They are peppering Peter with questions. And he can't handle it. He doesn't know how to respond. He denies even a working knowledge of Christ. I don't know him. Another hour passes. It is John who tells us, that a totally different person comes up with a third interrogation of the apostle named Peter. This other one, according to John, is a relative of Malchus. Malchus was the guy who had the ear chopped off in the garden. And this is a relative of Malchus. And he comes up and he says, yeah, you, you are one of them. I can tell you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. I can tell where you're from by the way you say what you say. You're a, you're, you're a Galilean. I can tell it by your accent. I can tell by your dress, by your demeanor. And I saw you in the garden. And according to Luke, Peter says, man, I, 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 I don't even know him. I don't even know what you're talking about. 
Luke is always very friendly to Peter in his gospel. He's always very kind towards the disciples. He gives us the rated for television version of the story. But not Matthew and Mark. Oh no. They say after this third interrogation that Peter began, begins to call down curses and swearing. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I'm not telling you the truth. He begins to call down curses upon himself and upon others. I swear on my mother's grave, I don't know who that man is. Peter used to be a fisherman. He probably retreated to the language of a salty sailor. The reality is his carnality is sticking out. He's in this moment. He... He doesn't know how to respond. He's not prepared. He's derailed. He's caught off guard. And his humanity of an epic failure emerges. Now, on this night, Peter boasted too much. He prayed too little. He acted too fast. He followed too far. And the end result is that he failed too often. An epic failure. For the third time, he said, I don't know this man. I have no working knowledge of him. I am not with him. And while Peter was cursing, while Peter was cursing, while he was cursing, the rooster crowed. Add insult to injury. In this moment when all of his carnality is being exposed and the reality of his complete sinfulness and his epic failure is on display for all to see, then that blasted rooster got a crow. And it hits him like a ton of bricks. And Luke gives us a detail that no other gospel writer gives us. Luke says, then Jesus looked straight at him. Pierced to the heart. Jesus is not even in the courtyard. Maybe he's handcuffed near the courtyard. Maybe he is locked behind a door where there's a window. Maybe he's standing in the second floor, locked away but able to look out into the middle of the courtyard. And even though Jesus is in there and Peter had distanced himself from the Lord, the Lord still knew what was going on in the courtyard. The Lord always knows what's going on in the courtyard. He knows what's going on in the courtyard of your life. When you may be on a fast track of an epic failure, you may find yourself following far from the Lord. You may find yourself distancing yourself from Christ, yet Christ still knows everything that's going on in the courtyard. And this also proves that Jesus is by himself. Nobody's with him. Everybody has scattered. Jesus is alone. And he looks right at Peter. And Peter remembers the word of God. He remembers the word of the Lord that was spoken to him just a few hours earlier, that before 
the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he begins to think back over the night and realize that he had been guilty of the very thing that he was adamant that he would not do. For Peter boasted too much and he prayed too little and he acted too fast and he followed too far and he failed too often and he wept bitterly and he left. He ran out. Finally, he ran out of the courtyard. Finally, he couldn't take any more of the conviction. Finally, he was overwhelmed. You think to yourself, why did he not leave earlier in the evening? Well, he wanted to live for the Lord, but he also wanted to preserve his life. But in this moment of overwhelming conviction, he says, I don't know what else to do. So he weeps bitterly and he runs. The word that means to weep bitterly means to sob uncontrollably. It means to to grieve as if you are grieving the death of a loved one. It's obvious. It's nonstop. Tears streaming down his face. When he got outside the high priest's compound, he must have stopped and tried to gather himself and say, how did I get here? How did this happen? How did I allow this to happen? I'm one of the disciples. I'm part of the inner circle. Why? How did this take place? And he felt embarrassed. He felt crushed. He felt dirty. He was grief stricken. He was overwhelmed. He understood that he was an epic failure. Peter was guilty. He was as guilty as the child whose hand is caught in the cookie jar. He's as guilty as the teenage boy who comes home after curfew. He's got alcohol on his breath, yet he stands before his dad and says, Dad, I've never had one drink. He's as guilty as the husband who's trying to lie to his wife about his whereabouts, even though there's lipstick on his shirt collar. He's as guilty as a politician who's trying to spin a scandalous story as if it's not quite as scandalous as everybody knows. He's guilty. He's crushed. He's overwhelmed. One of the things about uh, Peter's story is that it is so believable. And the reason it's believable is because it's relatable. You and I can relate to this story, can we not? If we're very honest with ourselves, we have to agree that you change a few of the details and that becomes my story, that becomes your story. For has there ever been a time in your life when you boasted too much, when you prayed too little, when you acted too fast, when you followed too far, when you failed too often? Have you ever been guilty of an epic failure? On this night, Peter was. And I wonder this morning, When was the last time you were crushed by your disobedience? When was the last time that you shed a tear over your epic failure? Maybe you come into church today and you're hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. Maybe you come into church today and you realize that you already are an epic failure. Or maybe you come in today and you realize from these last few moments that you're on the fast track of an epic failure. Because you've got the same characteristics going on in your life that Peter had going on in his life. This story is very relatable because it's very believable. We can relate to this. Yet when was the last time that we were so grief-stricken over our disobedience that we sobbed before the Savior? We were broken before the Lord. 
Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I told you at the very beginning that uh, this is a story of epic failure. And yet, I want to submit to you today that an epic failure yearns for eternal forgiveness. I mean, a real epic failure, somebody who understands the depth of their depravity, a real epic failure always yearns for eternal forgiveness. Once again, it's John's gospel that shows us the restoration of Peter. There's nobody who grieved the death of Jesus more than Peter. When Peter saw that Jesus did not make it through that night, but Early that morning, he was taken and he was uh, stripped and beaten and he was uh, led outside the city and nailed to a cross of wood and there he died and his body was placed into a borrowed tomb and a stone was rolled in front of it. There is no one who grieved the death of Jesus more than the apostle named Peter. When he heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he said, that's spectacular and it's scary. Spectacular because Jesus is alive, just as he said. Scary because what's he going to do to me? How is he going to respond? How am I to respond to him? So Peter, in his uh, brilliance, decided to go back to his old way of life and reopen Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. And he decided to go back fishing again. And the first night back in business, he catches nothing. He comes back towards the shore and he sees a man standing on the seashore. He does not yet know that it's the resurrected Christ. And that man shouts to him, drop your net on the right side of the boat. Peter says, oh, okay, what do you know about fishing? But because he's so exhausted, because he's caught nothing, he goes ahead and drops it over and he catches 153 large fish. Peter has got to be Baptist. Only a Baptist would count the number of large fish. 153 large fish. Realizing it's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat. He makes his way to the shore. It's spectacular because he sees Jesus. It's scary because he sees Jesus. Jesus has breakfast with all the disciples. They eat broiled fish. And then Jesus says to Peter, let's go for a walk on the seashore. And Peter says, you sure? Just the two of us? Don't you want somebody else to come with us? Jesus says, no, no, it's okay. Just the two of us. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. And for the third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter was hurt because the Lord asked him three times and he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus showed that the depth of his forgiveness could cover the depth of Peter's sinfulness. Peter had sinned against the Lord by denying him three times. And on three occasions, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, then I want you to take care of my lambs. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my sheep. Peter's come full circle. On that night in the upper room, When the Lord said, I'm praying for you, your faith will not fail. When you come back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I know myself better than you know me. I am not going to fail. 
I know myself better than you know me. Yet on the seashore, what does he say that third time? You know all things. I don't. You were right. I was wrong. You, Lord, know me better than I know me. You knew me better then, you still know me better now, and I got a sneaking suspicion you're going to know me better tomorrow than I know myself tomorrow. You know all things. Jesus had made a promise to Peter. Your faith will not fail. You may have ups, you may have downs, you may have moments of disappointment and despair, but your faith will not fail. This morning I came to tell you, church, your faith will not fail so long as it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith will not fail. That's not an arrogant statement. That's an accurate statement. It's not so much uh, a statement about you. It's a statement about your Christ. Because of him, your faith will not fail. Regardless of your hang-up, regardless of your habit, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your situation, Regardless of your strife, regardless of your setback, your faith will not fail. Because your faith is like mine. My faith does not originate within me. My faith is not sustained by me. My faith originates with the Lord and is sustained by him. So because of that, what the Lord says to Peter, he says to you today, your faith will not fail. You need evidence of this? Jesus said, feed my sheep. And the apostle Peter stood at Pentecost and preached, and on that day some 3,000 people were saved. One day Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They met a beggar, and Peter says to him, silver and gold, I do not have, but what I have I freely give you. In the name of Jesus the Christ, walk. And that guy jumped up to his feet. He hooped and hollered and skipped all the way into the church service. And Peter did have his day. Before the Sanhedrin. He was seized and summoned and stood before the Sanhedrin. And you know what Peter said on that day? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And Peter wrote sacred letters to the scattered church. And Peter was executed because of his faith. And yet he said, I do not want to die in the same manner as my Lord. I will be crucified upside down. Because I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up. And it's Jesus who escorted Peter into eternity. And all the while, I think Jesus said to Peter, I told you, your faith will not fail. Beloved, your faith in Christ will not fail you. Your faith in Christ will not fail. Regardless of your circumstance or your situation, regardless of the trouble or the trial, your faith will not fail. Faith that's squarely placed in Christ is faith that's planted by the Lord at the moment that you trusted Jesus as Savior. And it's God who plants that faith inside of you. It is God who pulls that faith out of you. And he says to you what he said to the Apostle Peter, your faith will not fail. So my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. And because of that, your faith will not fail.
So you come into this church today, and, and you may be hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. You may be wondering if you're going to make it one more day or one more week. You may be heavy-hearted. Your shoulders may be weighted down with the burdens of life. And you come crawling into the sanctuary today. Today I want you to know your faith will not fail. You may be crawling in. I want you to leap like a deer out of here. I want you to leap like a deer, light as a feather, to say, Lord, I know I can trust in you. Because your faith will not fail. You may have ups and downs. I promise you will. You may have moments of despair and disappointment. You probably will. But your faith won't fail you. This morning you may be here and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior. Today can be the day you go from no faith to faith. You may be here today and you are literally struggling, heavy, weighted, in, in a path of an epic failure. This morning, please, hear and heed the words of Christ. Be honest with yourself. Do you boast too much and pray too little and act too fast and follow too far and fail too often? Come to the one who can hold you, forgive you, and keep you both now and forevermore. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to come here. Whatever God is calling you to do this invitation, you do it. The story I read for you is an epic failure. But the best epic failures I know yearn for eternal forgiveness. And they find it in Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. You move. You have freedom. You strengthen us where we're weak. You correct us where we're wrong. And help us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.